Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. The message for this week is from our current verse-by-verse study from the book of James. In each message, we will see some practical truths for living God's way in situations and circumstances that are often out of our control. As always, we would love to have you join us for a Sunday service sometime here soon in Vancouver. You can find directions, more info, and more sermons on our website at citybaptist.ca. And uh, I'm excited about sharing the Word of God with you from the book of James. And so let's go ahead and turn to James chapter number 2 as we've been uh, working our way verse by verse through the book. And uh, some really challenging aspects to the Christian life that uh, James, the brother of Jesus Christ, brings up to us. And definitely today is one of those messages that is challenging in the sense of, if you remember back in uh, chapter number 1 and verse number 22, uh, James sort of began to me uh, a sort of a quest. (laughs) He became very intent on revealing to us the importance of having a faith that works. In other words, having a faith that is visible, a faith that is not only revealed in your private devotional life, but a faith that is revealed to all of, uh, all of the people in your circle of influence, people that, is, uh, people that uh, you come in contact with would see your active and see your visible faith. So since chapter 1, verse number 22, the last 19 verses, James has been, I would call it relentless. <laughs> He's been relentless in his il- illustration of what visible faith look, looks like. And today, I believe, is sort of a culmination of uh, statements and illustrations uh, revealing to us what true faith really looks like. And he does it by asking us some rhetorical questions that illuminate uh, if our faith is truly genuine. And he begins with a couple questions right at the beginning uh, where we're going to be today in James chapter number two, verse number 14. He begins with a couple questions that when you read this verse, there is something that inside of your mind and your heart is going to go, what? <laughs> That's what it's going to do. It may sound different than mine. It might be higher pitch, lower pitch. I don't know. But it's going to be like, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? All right, so look at verse uh, number 14. He says, what doth it profit, my brethren? What does it profit, my brethren, if uh, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? He asks the question. He says, what is the profit if you say you have faith but you don't have any works? And then he says this. Can faith save him? Can faith save him? Now, this statement here at first reading seems like he is questioning if faith alone is necessary for salvation. At first glance, when you read it, it seems that uh, he's saying that works actually plays a role in the salvation of, pe- uh, of a person. Now, of course, we know that is completely opposing to what Jesus said. In fact, it goes completely against what the Apostle Paul said and what the Apostle Paul spent most of his writings uh, trying to emphasize the fact that it is faith alone that saves a person. In Romans chapter number uh, 3, verse number 28, he says, Therefore, we conclude, after everything he said up to this point, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So Paul is saying it's not about the law, it's about faith. He also said in Romans 4, verse 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, speaking about Jesus, that justifieth the ungodly, it says his faith is counted for righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you guys understand that verse? You've probably heard me say it a million times, for by grace are you saved by faith, right? And it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we understand that it is faith alone, but it appears here that that James is making a contradictory statement. It appears that he's saying, no, 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 Paul's got it all wrong. Everybody else has it all wrong. It's faith, and then works is also necessary. Now, this seems so contradictory that theologians throughout the ages have sort of taken pause at this. 
Martin Luther, in fact, a, a guy who spent a lot of his life defending faith alone uh, during the Reformation, he attempted to remove the entire book of James from his Bible that he was trying to put together and from his doctrine. He tried to remove it completely because it did not seem to fit the idea of faith alone. He also tried to remove Revelation and Jude and a few other books. Now, I've got a problem with that. You understand, okay? I have a real problem with that. But he was trying to remove things that would suit his theology. But James here is bringing up a great point, and you're going to see it here in a moment. And so it's confused people, and even at first reading, if you just sort of pull it out of, out of, you know, pull it out of thin air and you read it, it seems like it's contradicting the truth of the gospel. But this is why having context to the word of God is so important. This is why having an, an overall view of scripture, this is why study, personal study is so important because you need to be able to compare scripture with scripture. That's the proper way of approaching it. But I want you to understand this because if you look at the New Testament as a whole, if it comes down to the teachings of Paul and James, Paul's teachings about faith and works focuses on the time before salvation, whereas James' focus is after salvation. Okay, Paul, he really focuses uh, uh, on what happens pre-conversion, and he absolutely denies uh, the, the implication that works is necessary for that, while James emphasizes then that works is necessary to show that you are saved. Isn't that interesting? Paul was fighting against a tradition that promoted a works-based salvation. James was fighting against faith light, if you want to call it that. The idea that, oh, you can just be saved and it never makes a difference and there's no evidence uh, in the way that you live, live your life. And so James puts this statement out there and he just sort of lets it hang. Do you have anyone in your life like that? They make like contradictory statements or shocking statements and they just sort of let it sit up there for a minute and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, like I, I've never heard. And then they explain themselves. That's kind of what James is doing here. He puts it out here. Can faith really alone save if there's no works? And then he kind of gets into it by giving us some illustrations. Now, the first illustration he gives to us is a faith that is dead. So point number one in your notes there, you can write that down. A faith that is dead. This is the illustration he gives to us in verse number 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Where's the, where's the profit in this? Then he says this in verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Even in the early church, just, I mean, we're talking 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even in that early church, there were those that claimed to have saving faith, but yet never truly possessed salvation. Because wherever there is truth, there's always a counterfeit, isn't there? Always a counterfeit. When it comes to uh, Christ, Jesus Christ, who's his counterfeit? Satan, right? And he emulates him in so many ways, especially near the end times. We see how Satan puts himself up there as the Messiah, as Jesus Christ, and he emulates it. It's fake. But we know as well, where, wherever there's been true money, there's always been counterfeit money. My wife, my, oh, hello. My wife worked at a bank uh, just not that long ago. Modern history, because we're not that old, you know? And uh, people were still trying to pass counterfeit bills. Modern day, can you believe it? A jewelry, there's fake jewelry. When I was a kid, I discovered what fool's gold was, you know, and I thought for sure I'd found gold, you know, as a child out there in my backyard, there's a rock and I split it open and gold, I'm rich. No, nah, it's a fool's gold. It wasn't real. It was counterfeit. Uh, today, one big thing for us is that there are a lot of real people out there. Did you know that? But there's also a lot of identity theft, <laughs> right? And some of you may have someone in a foreign country who has a credit card in your name and you have no idea 
until you go to get that loan. And that's a scary thing to go through uh, identity theft. But my point is, is that wherever there's truth, there's always fraud. There's always a counterfeit. Jesus, of course, warned us about it. When he said this, there'll be many that will say, Lord, Lord, but they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm paraphrasing that verse there. He said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in the Christian life, we have to understand people who have a dead faith will always substitute actions for simply words. People whose faith is not genuine, they will always substitute their actions with words of faith. And James gives us this illustration here. Now, remember last week, he gave us the illustration uh, within a church, uh, church family where a rich man comes in and a poor man comes in and how people uh, uh, approach them. And we dealt with the subject of favoritism. He gives us another situation. So now he talks about a person who comes into the church family and uh, they come to visit and it's obvious that they are not prepared for the weather. <laughs> you know, it's a little cold outside. They're wearing a t-shirt, right? Uh, they're wearing running shoes and there's six inches of snow on the ground. You know, it obviously it looks like they haven't been eating well lately. They're sort of unkempt. Maybe they've been sleeping in their car for a while. And they're obviously on hard times. They're unemployed. Difficulty is, is coming to their life. It sometimes uh, comes to all of us. But the Bible tells us here that in this situation, this person comes in and they're obviously struggling. And someone over here notices them come into the church and they notice all of these things that I just told you about. Well, they, man, it looks like they didn't take a shower this morning and, and they look like they're a little rough. And so that person in their faith walks over to them and tells them this. This is what this person says to them. Hey, it's good to see you today. I'm glad you're here. Hey, stay well fed in this weather. You want to make sure you stay warm in this weather. I can't believe you're not wearing a proper coat. You need to stay warm in this kind of weather. So make sure you're warm and hey, make sure you're eating a lot to stay, take care of yourself. And I hope that you have a blessed day. And then they turn and they walk out of the church, you know, and they, and they say, uh, you know, the weather's rough. You got to make sure you take, and the sentiment is so nice, isn't it? You know, and they come and they say these kind words and you, you take care of yourself. I'm concerned about you. But the fact is, is that that person leaves the church still hungry, still in need because nothing was done to actually help their actual need. Only a few words were said. Now, James is pointing out to us this. He's saying, a faith like that, a faith that is only words and not actions is a dead faith. In essence, he's saying it's a worthless faith. It may not even be real if it's only about words and it's not about actions. See, there are many people today who truly believe that they have faith and they in fact say, like in verse number 14, now here's a key phrase in verse 14 that I want to point out to you. Notice it, uh, how he said there in verse 14, he says, what did the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? So this is a person's testimony saying, I have faith. I, I'm a Christian is what they're saying. And, and what he's trying to say is that what is the point if you just say you have faith, but in your life there's a complete absence of Christian works and your life reveals in actuality that you're not a person of faith. No matter what you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But in reality, you're not truly saved. To James, he says that, uh, to that, just what James says, what good is it? It's worthless. It's, it's nothing. There's no profit at all because true faith requires compassion and action. That rhymes. Compassion and action. That's what true faith really requires. I heard a story about a, a, a preacher who, um, this is many, many years ago, but as he was walking along, uh, he discovered a friend of his uh, had had his horse killed accidentally. 
it's hard to relate to that story, okay? But, uh, you know, only one person here can relate to that story. But this horse had been killed accidentally. And so, as it was in those days, people were walking around, small community. There was a group of people gathered around this friend of his, and they were all saying to him, I am so sorry that this happened. Man, what a terrible thing to lose your horse. Horse is a big deal, right? And they're big and a big deal, right, to have a horse in those days. And, and, the, and this whole group of people are saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry that you lost your horse. Well, this preacher came along and he saw this and he, he witnessed what everyone was, was, uh, was doing and how they were saying sorry. Well, he turned to this one man who had just said to him, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And he said to this man, he said, well, I'm sorry, $10. How sorry are you? And he took off his hat and he passed it around to help this guy get a new horse. That's <laughs> what he's trying to do. Here's the point I'm trying to make is that he recognized that everyone there was just apologetic from a word standpoint. He said, okay, let's put some action now to this. Let's put some action to our faith. And it becomes visible then what he was trying to do. So James here says that there's this kind of people that are out there who, who say they have faith, but in reality, their faith is dead. But then he gives us another illustration and he talks about a faith that is deceptive, a faith that is deceptive. Look at verse number 18 now. So he's illustrating his point to us. He says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. He's, he's creating a hypothetical situation here. Then in verse 19, thou believest that there is one God and thou doest well. That's a good thing. The devils also believe and tremble. There's some really interesting things here in this passage. So James, as we know, has a great insight into the heart of man, doesn't he? It seems like he just speaks to us in a way that other writers don't necessarily speak. And what he's doing here is he is, while he's writing his letter, he's hearing the skeptics already. And so he's preparing answers for the skeptics. Some of you do that when you're getting ready to talk to your spouse, right? You prepare for the argument. You prepare for the... Uh, Maybe you should just go into it open-minded, right? When you have that meeting with your boss, you're already thinking of all of the art. Well, you know, I've got all these things. You're already arguing. You're, pre you're preparing. What is he going to say? How am I going to respond? And then you do it wrong anyway. And afterwards, you're like, oh, I should have said that, you know? And you missed out on that opportunity to really give him that, that zinger, right? Well, James is the same way. So he's writing and he's thinking. And so he brings up this, this situation here. And he knew that there would be some who would argue this. He knew that there would be some who would uh, argue against. And, and there would be some that would say oh it's just a matter of emphasis that's really what it's all about it's just about emphasis you know one Christian specializes in faith and theology and that's kind of who they are and then another person really focuses on outward expressions of their faith and they're just doing a lot of good works and and he's saying it's just a matter of emphasis they're both true believers James will have none of this okay he's not going to put up with it at all he maintains here his argument that it is impossible to show your faith without good works he says it's impossible to show your faith without your works. The two are complementary of one another because true faith is not just something that we, uh, uh, that we just speak about. It is something that is lived out in the life of a Christian. Now, imagine that I was a doctor. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of my, uh, my college, uh, my transcript. That's all I thought of for a second. But let's imagine I'm a doctor today. We had a good time imagining last week. So let's imagine today that I'm a doctor. And everywhere I went, I told you, on Sunday morning when I was preaching, I'd give you illustrations of how much of a doctor I was. You know, how I save people li lives and I, you know, I performed surgery this week. But then imagine in the middle of our service, we had a health crisis. Somebody had a health crisis, you know. And everyone is like, oh no, and we clear the chairs and we lay them out. And everyone looks to me and says, pastor, you're a doctor. 
save him. And I'm like, I leave. <laughs> and I leave, you know. I, I come over there and I'm like, how do you take a pulse? How, how do you, you know, how, how, do you, how do you do CPR, you know? And then I get somebody else to do it. Don't you think you would doubt all of my claims of being a doctor, <laughs> right? Because when the time for action came, I had nothing. It was gone. It was totally gone. I didn't, I didn't have it at all. In the same way, if I told you that I was an honest person, but then you kept catching me in lies. If I told you I'm, I'm honest and trustworthy, but I'm deceitful in my business dealings and I'm deceitful in how I communicate with people, you'd have a hard time accepting that I was an honest man. Same way with our faith. If I profess to you that I'm a Christian or if you profess that you're a Christian and you tell the world and you tell your family and friends, I'm saved and I'm a child of the king, but yet you never do any of the things that his word commands us. You're never found in obedience. There's no fruit of the spirit in your life. You're never giving. There's no evident work in your heart. There, uh, I think we'd be correct in maybe questioning that person's faith. You say, well, that's judgmental. Listen, the Bible tells us by your fruit, uh, by their fruit, you'll know them, Right? That's a, clear, that's a clear command for us to be able to, judge is a strong word, evaluate one another though. Because it's important that there is fruit. Somebody said this, where there is a fruit problem, there's a root problem. <laughs> and uh, you can take that to the bank. When there's a fruit problem in the Christian's life, there is a root problem, there's something going on. It's not always, I'm saying that they're not a believer, but there's something going on inside. That's why verse 19 here is so important. He, he, he gives us this, uh, this illustration, but verse 19 here is so important because he says at, at the end there, he says, thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Here's what he's trying to say to us. Faith that does not make a difference in a person's action is deceptive. It's deceptive because even the devils, even the demons believe that there is one God. Whoa, think about that. Even the devils. So James is saying this. He says, uh, he says, thou believest that there's one God. And he says, you do well. He th that's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to believe that there is one God, but is belief in the existence of God enough to save your soul? Is just recognizing or intellectually saying that, oh yeah, I believe there's, a, there's something out there. I believe that there's a force, right? I've heard that one before. I believe there's a force out there and it's just, they just want to have real life Star Wars is all it is, you know? But they say, I believe there's a God and, and they say this, well, it's just a, an intellectual idea or saying, yeah, I think there's a God. Is that really enough to save your soul? I don't think so because even the demons believe. And guess what? Demons are not going to heaven. We know that, Okay. But there's not a demon out there who's an atheist. I'll tell you that right now. There's not a single atheist demon out there. If you were to meet up with a demon, and I hope you don't, okay? Thankfully, we've well, got to have the Holy Spirit of God on you. And, but you were to ask a demon hypothetically, do you believe there is one God? Oh, yeah, of course I believe there's one God. Do you believe that uh, he came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and came as a vir born of a virgin to this earth? Yes, oh, of course I believe. Do you believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead? Oh, yeah, of course I believe that. The demon would agree with you on all of those things. But you said, hey, have you made him the Lord of your life? Is he the king of you? Is he? No, no, no. He disagreed with you at that point. Okay. And that's the thing. There's a lot of people out there who say, oh yeah, I think that I believe there's a God. But when it comes to actually putting their faith and trust in him and making him the Lord of their life and, and submitting to him entirely and repenting of the sin, they're like, no, 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 no. So that's what James is trying to say here. Isn't it, this is so great, isn't it? It's so profound. He's just clarifying it uh, so much for us. He's saying that it's not just about a mental an agreement. There is something else because there is such thing as a belief that is not true faith. In Acts chapter 8, here's a great example of it. How many of you remember the story of Simon the sorcerer? 
Okay, a couple of you. That's okay. I'll tell you real quick. In Acts chapter 8, there's a guy named Simon the Sorcerer, and he was known for doing some uh, witchcrafty type things. Well, uh, uh, it was in Samaria, of course, and so when the disciples came up or uh, people that were uh, split up by the... Um, persecution came there and uh, they began to preach and teach Jesus Christ well he decided that he believed that there was a God and in fact it tells us that he was baptized so he he professed faith and he was baptized but then later on when Peter came up to Samaria to encourage those new believers uh, Simon the sorcerer came to him and uh, he asked and he tried to buy the apostles holy spirit power (laughs) and he offered them money And he said, I want this thing. And they're like, well, okay, if you're saved, then the Holy Spirit is part of you. There's no difference in what I have than what you have. And and Peter responded to him in this way. He said this, he says, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Look what he says in verse 22, repent, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He's in bondage still to his sin. He's not been saved and released from his sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was saved. He made a profession and he was baptized, but he's in the bond of iniquity. What that tells us is that there is a appearance of faith that is not real. And Simon's faith, I believe, is a picture of millions of people on this earth who through the veil of religion, right? Through the veil of religion say, I believe that there is a God, but there's no evidence of true faith in their lives. There's no evidence of a fear of God. And tragically, I believe there'll be many people in hell one day who are monotheistic in their theology. They believe there's one God. They believe it, but it's never, uh, they, they basically missed heaven by 18 inches, (laughs) from the head to the heart because it's all up here it's head knowledge it never was a part of who they were and they missed it by just that much because they had a mental ascent here this is what he's trying to tell us here real faith is more than just a mental agreement to truth it is a belief that involves the heart in Romans chapter 10 9 and 10 one of my favorite passages in all of scripture that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that's the idea of a mental agreement the Lord Jesus and look at this and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. What does it say there? Say it with me. Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the uh, the mouth confession is made unto salvation. He's connecting here the heart to the whole thing. When the, uh, when the Philippian jailer cried out to Paul and Silas in the jail, remember, and they said, what? And he said to them, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The word where he says believe on is the Greek word epi, which, is the, which means motion forward. It means to rest upon an object. Who are we putting our faith? Who are we resting on? It's on Jesus Christ. It means that we rest everything upon him, not just know about him, but truly believe on him for our salvation. And it is this faith that lays hold of God's grace to you. And that turning to him, John Wesley is a man from uh, many, many years ago who was born in England but came over to the United States, and, and, and he really was used by God in, in many different ways. But when he first came over to the United States and uh, he, he became a missionary, he was a clergyman, and he worked for the Lord with everything that he had. He, he really gave up his life for the Lord. Uh, he had memorized most of the Greek New Testament. That's a fun hobby, right? Like, I think I'll memorize it in Greek, you know, let alone English. He had a very disciplined devotional life. 
Somebody once, uh, somebody who disagreed with him theologically one time, a man by the name of George Whitfield, which many of you have probably heard about before, a man who, who really sparked a revival in North America. Somebody asked George Whitfield because he didn't agree on a few things with, uh, uh, with John Wesley, and they asked John Whitfield, or, uh, George Whitfield, they said, do you believe that he'll be in heaven? <laughs> is what he said. And he said this, he said, he, said, uh, he said, it'll be hard for me to tell because he'll be so much closer to the throne of grace than I will be. <laughs> wow, <laughs> what a statement, huh? Most of us would have been like, yeah, I don't know if he's going to heaven. But he, he, uh, he, he man, he gave him credit because he had a very devoted devotional life. He, uh, uh, as a missionary to the American First Nations, he slept in the dirt in order to increase his merit and his connectivity with them to try to reach them and Hopefully, in his mind, he would be more accepted by God by, by doing some of those things. So he was already a missionary. He was already speaking. And then there came a day where he truly trusted in Christ for his salvation, where it went from a mental ascent, a great knowledge. He was giving his life already, but he tells about that day where he finally put his trust in Jesus Christ, where he rested in him completely. And with then that true faith, it gave so much more to his action, and it made such a, a greater impact that he really impacted North America for the gospel. He preached in churches. He preached in the mines. He preached in the fields. He preached on the streets. He preached off of horseback. The story even goes that he preached a message while standing on his father's tombstone. <laughs> I mean, this guy, was, this guy was something else. They say that he preached over 42,000 sermons. He averaged 4,500 miles a year on a horse. He rode 60 to 70 miles a day uh, on a horse, and he preached three sermons a day on an average. When he was 83, this is what he said. He said, I am a wonder to myself. He's not doing it in a prideful way, okay? He says, I'm a wonder to myself. I am neither tired, uh, either with preaching, writing, or traveling as an 83-year-old man. He said, I just, I'm, I'm just full of, I love doing it. I love doing it. And the church has never been the same. He made an incredible difference. Okay, Miles, give that to mom. Okay, you're being a distraction. All right. There we go. One more time. There we go. That works. <laughs> it's great having the kids in here today. <laughs> and, uh, and the point is, is that when that faith sort of took root, that's when he really got, began to see God begin to do a great work in his heart and in his life. See, a faith that is just words is a dead faith. A faith that is only a mental agreement is deceitful. But James now gives us another example here, a positive example, and he does it with two illustrations. So let's look at a faith that is distinct. A faith that is distinct. So he uses a couple of Old Testament examples for us, people on the opposite ends of the human spectrum. Look at verse number 20. He says, but wilt thou now, O vain man, uh, uh, but wilt thou know, sorry, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered uh, Isaac, his son, upon the altar, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. That's pretty awesome, huh? Friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith alone. So again, he throws in this little phrase at the end, and you're like, what? What are you talking about here? Now, he goes to Abraham, and he gives us a story about Abraham. Now, Abraham, uh, as you know, was called of God. He's the father of a nation. But 25 years um, before Isaac was born, God had made him the promise that he would have a son. 
He would be the father of many nations, and he was 75 years old when that happened, and he waited for 25 years for God to fulfill that promise, and sure enough, it did. His wife, Sarah, had a son in her 90s, and, uh, and this promised son came along, and, but just after a few years, God asked Abraham to give back his son to God by way of a sacrifice. Now, it went against everything that God had ever required of his people. It went against everything that God had ever asked of Abraham, but he said to him, I want you to offer up your son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, Abraham, his faith was incredible, incredible. And his faith was so great that he willingly, without hesitation, took his son up on that mountain and was literally in the act of taking his son's life as a sacrifice to God when God stepped in and provided that substitutionary lamb. Now that's a great story right there about the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. What a picture. But God stepped in and he said, wait, look over there in the bushes, right? There's a ram's caught by its horns. He says, that is the sacrifice. Now for us in all of scripture, this is probably one of the most revealing single acts of faith that you would ever see where he would, uh, to, would actually go and take this son of his old age that he had desired for an entire life and take him up not knowing the outcome and then living out his faith in that way. In Hebrews, it describes it this way, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, talk about a trial, right? <laughs> offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall, all, uh, shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. That was the faith of Abraham. That even if I do sacrifice my son, God will raise him from the dead. That's what he's saying. From whence also he received him in a figure. Say, why did James bring up this story? Did he actually believe that Abraham was saved from his sins because he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac? Is that why he says he was justified then by his works? Of course not. Remember, James is writing from the context of after salvation, right? After salvation. So he's not saying that when he believed God. Now remember, James knew the Old Testament, right? He knew the Old Testament. In fact, he knew Genesis 15, 6 that told us, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That's talking about Abraham. So James knew that it was because of his faith, his belief in God, that he was made righteous, is he saying then that somehow he wasn't actually forgiven of his sins until 25 years later? No, no, no. Remember, he's talking about evidence, right? Evidence of salvation. And that's what he's saying. Sinners are justified, declared guiltless before God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But his willingness then to sacrifice Isaac was not the means by which he secured salvation. He already possessed salvation, but rather he's showing his salvation by his unquestioning obedience of God. And James' point is very, very plain. Just like Abraham showed his faith, was justified before men by his act of obedience to God, were to do the same thing. And then he gives us another illustration. He talks about Rahab. Look at verse number 25. We're almost done. I'm getting there. Number 20, verse 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot. Interesting. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. So how does James go from Abraham to Rahab? How does he go from the patriarch to the prostitute, right? That's a bit of a jump, wouldn't you say? 
Here's why. James knows us. James knows the human heart, doesn't he? And James knows that if he only used Abraham as an example, we'd be like, come on, James. Abraham? Like, come on. This is the father of, the, you know, of Israel. He's your chosen one. He's the one you called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Come on. You expect us to be like Abraham, the one who went and sacrificed, or, you know, was about to sacrifice his son? How could you? He says, okay, I knew you were going to argue that. So let's talk about Rahab the prostitute. Let's look at every spectrum here, every, the uh, opposing sides. And so he says there, and he, he goes and he shows us the same point. <laughs> True faith is evident in our works. See, in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab risked her life because she came to believe in the God of Israel. And that faith that she had made her willing to take a huge risk and hide the Israelite spies that were come to check out the city. And then she gave them directions and helped them escape detection by her own people. Think about that. Now, Joshua 2, I'll read these verses. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard those things, our hearts did melt when they heard the truth and the power of God. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, look at, she's making a statement now, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. She is making a statement here, proclaiming Jesus Christ, or proclaiming God as the one true God. Now, is James here saying that she secured her salvation then by helping out those spies? Of course not. She already possessed faith. She had heard about the great things that God has done. And so because she had heard about God and because she believed him, because she knew about it, it then motivated her action then of faith. Her actions with the spies were a result of the faith that already existed in her heart, and she laid her life on the line because of her faith. Now, the big thought out of all of these illustrations is that both Abraham and both Rahab did something. <laughs> they both had an evidence of faith. They did not just claim to have faith and sit around talking about it. Their faith led them to action, and they weren't just charitable actions. It didn't just lead them to give a few bucks to a homeless person. It led to big, bold, uh, huge, obedient actions of faith for God that God used and has continued to use in his word for generations and thousands of years. See, the thing is this, true faith is still leading us to action today. <laughs> These, uh, all these examples that he gives to us are so, so clear. But the point that James is trying to make to that early church and to us is that, listen, the same should be said of us. That our outward actions are motivated and are, they happen because of our faith. And so he wraps it all up with one verse here. He wraps it all up. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead... So faith without works is dead also. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He's saying here that a faith that does not result in distinctively Christian good works is a dead faith. And then he compares it to a corpse. <laughs> That's the idea. It's dead. See, here's the thing. Our faith, okay, the if we take, if we take the, the knowledge that we have of the word of God and we sort of combine it into one aspect, we would call that, um, we would call that our, our body of faith, or this is what we believe. 
But if you just have knowledge without true faith in Jesus Christ, without that Holy Spirit, uh, a power behind it, he said you have nothing. It's just dead. And what good is that without life? Now, I want you to imagine for a second that I snuck down to the morgue and I grabbed a dead body. Oh, that's creepy. <laughs> so creepy. All right, so let's not, uh, let's not, okay. Uh, let's see here. Who's going to help me out today? All right, I need some help. Jonah? He'd make, a, he'd make a lovely corpse. All right, come on up here. I just want one last illustration. I want you to get this. Okay, here. I won't make you lay on the floor, but all right. So sit here, and, and you're just you're dead. So just sort of slump in there. Okay. All right. So I brought in old dead Jonah here. Man, we miss him. Come on. Yeah, slump a little bit more. There you go. Okay. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's dead. Okay. I'm not making light of death. Okay. But you know what I mean. You understand what I'm saying? He's, he's dead. Now, to us, living... He's not really much good. I mean, Cecil, he's not really that much good to you guys anymore. I'm sorry. I mean, we need to put him in the ground, right? We need to have a funeral, and, and that's what needs to happen, okay? You say, man, Pastor, this is getting weird. Okay, just stay with me, okay? I'm making a point. Now, let's pretend, <laughs> okay? Now, okay, by the way, by the way, he, I mean, he is, I mean, I can, I can kind of move him, right? Like, I can, I can do a few things. But ultimately, we know he's dead, right? He's dead, okay? Now, Let's, let's now say uh, he miraculously came to life. Okay, there we go. Oh, that was weird. All right, stand up. All right, so Jonah's now alive, okay? Jonah, walk around, walk in the back and come back here. All right, give some high fives. All right, he's going to prance around a little bit. Oh, man, that was weird. All right. <laughs> okay, now, does him walking around now, does he, does he walk around? I want to make sure I get this right. I'm gonna look here. Does his walking around give him life? Does his walking around give him life? No. Life allows him to walk around, right? Okay. And now he can walk and talk and provide for his family, and he can, he can do now some things. But if I was to say to Jonah, if I said, hey, Jonah, uh, why are you alive? He might say to you, well, I'm alive because I'm walking, right? I'm alive because I'm moving. I'm alive because I'm doing good works. I say, no, 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 no. You are walking, you are doing works, you're providing for your family because you have life. You see what I'm saying there? The actions, he would say, well, I'm doing these things, therefore I'm alive. No, 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 no. You are doing the actions because you are alive, because of that life that is within you. Thanks, John, you can sit down. Do you guys get that? Does that make sense? Okay. The body without the spirit is dead. Your faith without the life behind it is dead. So what does this all mean to us? <laughs> what does this all mean to us today? Here, here's what it means. First of all, it means that you today can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love that. It isn't about what you do. It's about what he's done. And Jesus encourages us to come to him as a child and in simple faith accept what he's offered to you. It's not easy, easy believism as some might say, but it is simple faith. In Jesus Christ. I mentioned it earlier, but Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And then not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you can be saved today. It may be that some of you today have only faith. You only talk about your faith, but there's no true evidence of your faith in your life. You can be saved today. You can be saved today. And for those of you who are saved, I would say this, the big takeaway of this is are, or is your life, is your faith resulting in action? Are you like an Abraham? Are you like a, 
Rahab, whose faith is so clearly shown. He says, I show my faith through my works. Maybe it's time for a little bit of a readjustment in the way we approach the Christian life. James so clearly, man, he first shocks us, right? And makes us uncomfortable. (laughs) And then he so clearly lays it out to us. He says, the works of our Christian faith are because of our faith. Too many people today say, I do good things, therefore I have faith. He says, no, no, no. The good things, the works are because of your faith. Because of your faith. And it's a, it's a bit of a mental shift in some regard because we put so much stock on good things, don't we? We put, oh, wow, you know, you gave a certain amount or you, you did a certain thing for a person and we're like, well, that's, that's, you know, man, look at what I did. I must have a great faith. Or, or did that come as an overflow of your faith, your trust in God? And it really is good for us as Christians to evaluate that aspect of our lives, to really think about it. And I believe that's what James is trying to get across to us here. And I believe he makes his point very well. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) I think he really knows how to get to it. And that's my message for this morning. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We hope today's message was an encouragement in your relationship with Christ. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Vance City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will.